Father, we do come to worship you today. And we thank you and we praise you that you are the only holy God. Oh, Father, I ask now that you will soften our hearts by your Holy Spirit as we hear your precious word read and preached. I pray, Father, for Duncan as he delivers the word today, that you will be with him in might and strength as he tells us and teaches us about your son, your powerful son, your compassionate, holy son, Jesus. So be with us now, Father, in your precious name. Amen. You may be seated. So I invite Helen to come and read. Reading from Luke 8, to 56. One day, Jesus said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side of the lake. So they got into a boat and set out. As they sailed, he fell asleep. A squall came down on the lake so that the boat was being swamped and they were in great danger. The disciples went and woke him up, saying, Master, Master, we're going to drown. He got up and rebuked the wind and the raging waters. The storm subsided and all was calm. Where is your faith? he asked his disciples. In fear and amazement, they asked one another, Who is this? He commands even the winds and the water and they obey him. They sailed to the region of the Gerasenes, which is across the lake from Galilee. When Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had commanded the impure spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him, and though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and had been driven by the demon into solitary places. Jesus asked him, what is your name? Legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into him. And they begged Jesus repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. A large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. The demons begged Jesus to let them go into the pigs and he gave them permission. When the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. When those tending the pigs saw what had happened, they ran off and reported this in the town and countryside and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out sitting at Jesus' feet, 
dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people how the demon-possessed man had been cured. Then all the people of the region of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them because they were overcome with fear. So he got into the boat and left. The man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with him, but Jesus sent him away saying, Return home and tell how much God has done for you. So the man went away and told all over the town how, many, how much Jesus had done for him. Now when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. Then a man named Jairus, a synagogue leader, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house, because his only daughter, a girl about 12, was dying. As Jesus was on his way, the crowd almost crushed him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. Who touched me? Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Jesus, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. Then he said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. While Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, he said. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, Don't be afraid. Just believe and she will be healed. When he arrived at the house of Jairus, he did not let anyone go in with him except Peter, John and James and the child's father and mother. Meanwhile, all the people were wailing and mourning for her. Stop wailing, Jesus said. She's not dead, but asleep. They laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But he took her by the hand and said, My child, get up. Her spirit returned and at once she stood up. Then Jesus told them to give her something to eat. Her parents were astonished, but he ordered them not to tell anyone what had happened. Thank you, Helen, uh, for reading that so well. Isn't it um, great to hear these, for many of us, familiar stories, but hear them again. Uh, Friends, we're going to think this morning about fear. 
And so I want to ask you, where is your fear? Um, Some of us have specific fears, like circumstances that sort of raise our fears up, cause our adrenaline to spike. Um, I don't handle heights very well at all. Um, And this came home to me when when we were on holidays last uh, last year. Um, I went for a walk with Nate over this big bridge. Um, And the path, for some reason, they put the path right on the edge of this bridge, And all that stood between me and oblivion was this spindly kind of see-through, waist-height fence. Um, And meanwhile, Nate's kind of happily strolling along. You know, he's a a tough guy. And I'm I'm sort of clutching the side, dragging myself along, kind of um, white-knuckled, trying to calm my breathing down. Um, And uh, we made it halfway. You can see by that photo, I'm kind of as far as I could get across the other side from from the footpath. We got to about halfway across the bridge, and then I said, right, this is enough, and I slunk back onto land, to the safety of land. I feel a little bit um, panicky just thinking about it, actually. Uh, maybe you've got something like that. Um, uh, maybe some, you know, like we, we know of the phobias, don't we? Claustrophobia. Um, coolrophobia. You ever know what that is? The fear of clowns. Um, uh, I had a new one this week, though called nomophobia. Anyone heard of this? Nomo stands for no mobile. Um, so this is, this is a serious thing. Uh, it's a recognised um, uh, anxiety, a fear, uh, a fear of being without your phone. And probably more of us experienced it than would like to admit a recent study I read uh, of, about, in Australia said that 99.2% of phone users they surveyed had some fear about not being with their phone. Um, so that's, uh, that's telling, isn't it? Um, but while many of us have, might have these kind of specific fears, fear is a much deeper thing for us, isn't it? For all of us, no matter who we are. It drives so much of what we do. And sometimes that's good, right, and healthy. You probably want, it's, it's probably good to have a fear response if, you know, you're on the road and a car's hurtling towards you. You know, like, uh, there's, there's fear that can be healthy and right and good, But we know, don't we, often our fears just get out of proportion. Sometimes they even control us. Now, these fears are very complex and very deep and are very personal to each of us. But what stands out, and maybe you noticed this as we read through, what stands out from this long passage that we're looking at this week at church is um, how much fear is flying around everywhere. There's fear all through this passage. Uh, so the disciples are in that boat and they're, you know, they're sure that they're going to drown. Uh, this, this town in the Gerasene region is living in fear of this utterly terrifying man. They, they've chained him up but they can't control him. Jairus is petrified he's going to lose his daughter. I mean, you can just see fear flying around through this whole passage. But what's really interesting, I think, is that there's actually something else that causes even more fear. Um, that makes people even more afraid. Not so much the circumstances they're in, as bad as those are. What we'll see through this section is that what really leaves people in awe and fear is encountering Jesus. Um, when, when people see his awesome power and majesty, a power that only God could have. So that's quite interesting, isn't it? Uh, and we're going to notice that on the way through. Uh, but how that fear can be turned to the best 
the best news and the best thing ever. But let's um, dive in. If you've got your Bibles, turn to um, Luke 8. It'll, uh, some of the passages will be on the screen too. But um, we're picking up this, the story in, the, in this chapter. Uh, and, and here's a bit of a map. Um, so a bit of a helpful map of Palestine in Jesus' time. It shows a bit of an outline of Luke's gospel as well. So you can see as Luke's gospel progresses, Jesus sort of travel, basically travels south uh, from up in the north around Galilee, through Samaria, and down into Judea and Jerusalem. Um, zoom in, next map. Um, uh, Jesus is up north on the Sea of Galilee, uh, up there in the, um, uh, yeah, in the Galilee region. So that, it's, a, it's a large lake, basically. It's about 10 kilometres wide at its widest points. It's surrounded by hills and mountains, which you can kind of make out on that map. It sits below sea level, and what all of that means is that these cold winds can rush down from the mountains and very quickly stir up really serious storms on the lake. That's kind of a known thing that happens. Um, and that's what happened on this day that we're reading about in Luke 8. When, so Jesus takes his disciples, he gets into the boat, into a boat, and they're sailing along on the, on the sea. And in verse 23, Jesus falls asleep. He's, he's been very busy, and you can kind of understand it on one level, why he's falling asleep. But while he's sleeping, this sudden squall, we're told, just furiously rises up on the ocean um, and comes down on the lake and whips up this furious storm. Uh, some of you might have experiences of storms at sea. I think the power of the sea is terrifying. <laughs> like it is, sometimes when the weather's up, we like to go down to the rocks at Port Elliot, now around sort of Freeman's Knob and Knight's Beach, and you just watch these, have you ever done this? You watch these massive waves just pounding the granite boulders there, and it's this awesome display of power. It's kind of, it's about as close as I really ever want to get to the power of the sea. But unlike me, half of Jesus' disciples were experienced fishermen. Like they spent years and years on this lake. They knew it like the back of their hand. They, and even they, they are terrified at what's happening here. They're fearing for their lives. And Jesus is sleeping. <laughs> and you can, I, you can imagine them thinking, surely, he, you know, like waiting, the storm's getting worse and worse. And they think, surely he's going to wake up soon. You're like, water's coming into the boat. What's going on? Eventually, they build up the courage to sort of shake him awake and they, they say, Master, we're going to drown in verse 24. Uh, there's a lovely connection here to uh, one of the Old Testament's, a few of the Old Testament Psalms, actually, but one of them in particular, Psalm 107, a part of it is written about sailors in a storm. It should be on the screen. It says this, they mounted up to the heavens, sort of on the big waves, and went down to the depths, in their peril, their courage melted away. They reeled and staggered like drunkards. They were at their wits' end. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he brought them out of their distress. He stilled the storm to a whisper. The waves of the sea were hushed. Uh, and there's, there's a number of psalms that kind of pick up on this theme. And so for the faithful Israelite, they knew that it was, it was God, the creator of all things, their saviour and redeemer, it was Yahweh who had the power over the storm. But you notice what these sailors do in Luke 8? They cry out to Jesus. And Jesus gets up in verse 24. He rebukes the wind and the raging waters. 
Now, if anyone else was to do that, you'd think they were a madman, wouldn't you? I mean, can you imagine going down to the rocks at Port Elliot when there's a storm up and sort of putting your hand out and telling the wind to stop and the water to cease? Um, someone would, you know, sort of call the, uh, the police on you. So, you, know, you know, let's get this guy to safety. He's obviously a bit, you know, uh, that's what you'd think. And you would be right, wouldn't you, to think that for anyone except for Jesus. Remember what we looked at right at the start of this series. This is Luke's carefully written, orderly account taken from the eyewitnesses. And here's what Luke records for us, verse 24. Jesus got up, rebuked the wind and the raging waters. The storm subsided and all was calm. Just a word from Jesus. And this furious storm that made the sailors, the experienced fishermen, terrified is stilled in a moment, in a moment, just with a word. And here's where, you know, I was saying people are afraid of Jesus through this. Here's where you see that. The disciples, they're filled with fear, a different kind of fear. In verse 25, Jesus asked his disciples, where is your faith? And in fear and amazement, they ask one another, who is this? Even, he, even, he commands even the wind and the water, and they obey him. Who is, who is this? I mean, wouldn't you be sort of filled with a little bit of fear, and maybe a lot of fear, encountering someone with such power? Okay, well, from one storm to another. Uh, this time it's a storm not on the lake, but a storm that's brewing inside a person. So um, you, as we read it, Jesus gets to the other side of the lake. He goes uh, into this, um, the sort of um, eastern side of the lake, which is non-Jewish territory um, they're heading into. And in verse 27, they're met by this terrifying sight. This guy who has been, it's terrifying and tragic and just so sad, isn't it? This guy who had for years been without clothes, living in tombs, wild, uncontrollable. The local townspeople had chained him up out of fear, but with some kind of supernatural power, he just breaks those chains apart. Uh, so he's in this graveyard by the sea, and this, he's this haunted shell of a man. There's pretty weird stuff that goes on here, isn't there? There's, weird, there's supernatural stuff um, in this account, it's easy to think that in our Western enlightened society, no one believes in the supernatural, but actually that's not true. Um, so I came across this survey from a few years ago, um, an Australian group called McCrindle. Uh, found, they actually found that two-thirds of Australians either believed or were open to the possibility of spiritual reality, things like ghosts or miracles or souls. So two-thirds of Australians either believe or are open to that. Another significant proportion aren't sure, and then the small, very you know, small proportion are definitely not uh, think it doesn't happen. So um, that's interesting, isn't it? Uh, it's, uh, I've been noticing that a really big rise um, in interest in things like the occult. I read recently that there's more witches, like recognised witches, in America than Presbyterians. So that's um, interesting, isn't it? That's one of their big denominations over there. Friends, the Bible presents us with an unapologetically supernatural vision of the world. 
uh, where there is an unseen spiritual realm that includes forces of evil, spirits aligned with Satan, the father of lies. I think this quote is really helpful when we're thinking about these things. This is some wisdom from C.S. Lewis. He wrote this brilliant book called The Screwtape Letters. Some of you may have read it, which sort of explores these, some of these things. Uh, he writes, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves, the devils, are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist and magician with the same delight. I like that last sentence, but you get what he's, get what he's saying, right? Like, it's foolishness to downplay or ignore the reality of evil spiritual forces. The New Testament talks in terms of a spiritual war going on, uh, and in the gospel, you have the armour of God to wage that war um, but it's so it's foolishness to deny that to downplay it it's also foolishness to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in these things there's a danger you might open yourself up to something very real and very dark and i do just want to pause at that point and i guess warn us as a church family i know some of us have been drawn to spiritually dark things Maybe you still are. This is not a game to play or something to toy with. You are not strong enough to do that. And what we see in this haunted man is a really graphic picture of where demonic forces lead. They dehumanise. They destroy So I think there is a real warning for us to hear. On the other hand, some of us might kind of not have that excessive interest in it, but just live in a real, and, and actually live in a real fear of spiritual forces. Uh, some Christian cultures can lean that way, I think. You kind of start to see devils under every cushion. And if that's you, I think what we see here is really good news. You don't have to live in fear actually, because there is, there's actually something more important going on in this account than the evil power at work in this man. What you see here is the far greater, more wonderful and sovereign and loving power of Jesus. Um, it's interesting, isn't it? In the boat, the disciples ask, who is this? But the first thing this demon-possessed man does is recognise Jesus for who he really is. Um, at that point, I think this guy actually, he sees clearer than the disciples. So verse 28, when he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, don't torture me. So this demon, or we find out later, this legion of demon, a whole company of them, um, he cries out, they, they see Jesus, they see in him the one with unrivaled power over them, the Son of God, the Son of the Most High, and they are afraid. Anyway, we read what happens, we don't have time to go into detail, but he, Jesus heals this poor desperate man, he drives out these evil spirits, they go into the herd of pigs who 
go crazy and rush down into the ocean, the, the sea and are drowned. The key thing to see, I think, though, is that just like that stormy ocean, this furious spiritual storm going on inside this guy is calmed in an instant with a word from Jesus. With a word from Jesus. What power he has. Uh, so the word gets out. The locals come and see what's happened. Verse 35, they, come to, they came to Jesus. They found the man from whom the demons had gone out sitting at Jesus' right, as Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind. And here it is again. And they were afraid. They were afraid. So you could, for the first time in years, there's this man, this precious person made in the image of God, and he's had his life restored to him. He's clothed. Notice that. He's gone from being naked to being clothed. He's in his right mind. He's not frantically moving around, driven by this torment within him. He's sitting calmly at Jesus' feet in humble submission to him. It's just this beautiful and total transformation, isn't it? Um, but instead of seeing that and rejoicing in it, see what, what the people are, what their response is? They are terrified by Jesus and his power. And in verse 37, they ask him to go away. It's like, oh, we don't want you near us, Jesus. I think this is a really tragic moment. Um, they could have joined this guy, right, and sat down at Jesus' feet as, and to learn from this one with such power and to follow him. Instead, they want nothing to do with him. It's a response many people actually have to Jesus. Even maybe those who come regularly to church, uh, you might see something of his authority. You might be drawn to his, something in his teaching. Uh, you, maybe you'll even accept that Jesus rose from the dead. But when it comes to it, when it comes to actually sitting down before him in humility and dependence on him as your Lord, you want nothing to do with him. You, you tell him to go away. And if that's you, I want to urge you today to change your hearts and your mind, to repent, to turn around from that attitude towards Jesus. And as we read on, we just see why we can do that, why anyone can do that, why you should do that. Because he's not only the powerful son of the Most High who destroys the devil's work and calms the storm, He's the beautiful Lord of life who is full of compassion. Um, so that, that, that comes through so powerfully in the third scene that we had read out for us. So back over the other side of the lake now. Um, they go back to the other side. Jesus and his disciples uh, head over. In verse 40, there's this crowd waiting for him. Like They've been waiting in there. They're keen to get another piece of Jesus. The, verse 41, a synagogue leader called Jairus comes and falls at Jesus' feet. It's a bit of a surprise, isn't it? If we've been reading up to this point, usually the leaders are the ones who reject Jesus. But this guy, he's, he doesn't. He's seen something of Jesus' goodness and power. And, but we also find out his daughter is, 
his precious 12-year-old daughter, in verse 42, is dying. So, I mean, you, already we think this is, this is an intense moment, right? So Jesus goes with him. But then something really strange happens. Um, we've got this crowd pressing around Jesus. And in the midst of the crowd is another desperate person. A woman who's been bleeding for 12 years. She's heard about Jesus too, and she thinks, if, if I just even touch him, just even touch the edge of his cloak, I'll be healed. And so that's what she does. Verse 44, she goes up and touches the edge of his cloak. Immediately the flow of blood inside her dries and stops. She's completely healed. It's worth noticing just how different these two scenarios are, right? One is totally urgent, right? Um, Jairus' daughter is on death's door. She's a vulnerable 12-year-old girl. Jairus is an important man uh, on top of that, you know, a man of real high social standing. But this woman who encounters Jesus here, she's been bleeding for as long as Jairus' daughter has been alive. Like, there's no urgency at all in what's going on here. Uh, and on top of that, she's sort of right at the bottom of the social ladder. So there's this intensity building at this moment. And, and, and the question everyone's asking in the crowd is, is Jesus going to get to the girl on time? <laughs> like, is he going to get there on time to save her? And Jesus does this really shocking thing. This woman touches out, reaches out, touches his cloak and is healed. Jesus stops. Sort of, he stops this urgent rush to get to Jairus' daughter. He stops everyone. He stops everything. He looks around in verse 45 and asks, Who touched me? Everyone around him, I think, is like, What's going on, Jesus? What are you doing? <laughs> like, uh, firstly, what, you know, what kind of question is that? You've got this huge crowd pressing around you. Everyone's touching you. And, and then secondly, we're, we're kind of in a rush here. You know? <laughs> like, but Jesus has something really important to teach this woman. I, I, I think what's going on is he's concerned that she might have like a superstitious attitude to what's happened, as if Jesus is some kind of worker of magic and he has... Mag clothes with, with magical properties imbued into them or something, you know? Like, I think, because that's not what happened at all. What really brought healing to her wasn't some impersonal magic force that she happened to latch onto. It was her trust in the person of Jesus. So this is a personal encounter with him. And Jesus wants her to know this. So she falls at his feet trembling. Jesus says, I think, with real tenderness to her in verse 48, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. What beautiful words. They're actually the exact, apart from the daughter, they're the exact same words he said to the, um, the sinful woman at um, Simon's house that we looked at last week. Your faith has saved you there, but they're actually the same words, save and heal. Your faith has saved you. Your faith has healed you. Go in peace. Both of these women, outcast from society, 
are beautifully, tenderly saved by Jesus through their, through their faith in him. Not through some magical transaction, but just through them coming to him in dependence and trust. And he sends them away in peace, a peace they could get nowhere else. So it's a beautiful moment, but this delay has come at a big price, hasn't it? You read on verse 49, and everyone's heart just sort of drops at this moment, I think, except for one person's. <laughs> but verse 49, someone comes from Jairus's house and tells him his daughter is dead. Don't bother Jesus anymore. And I reckon if I was in the crowd at this point, I'd be thinking... It's nice that you spoke to that woman, Jesus, but did you really need to? Did you really need to stop and do that for that woman? She'd already been healed, and now because you wanted to have that chat with her, Jairus's daughter is dead. But I would think that because I don't understand the matchless power of Jesus not just over nature or even evil forces or even sickness. His power is so great that not even death makes him panic or makes him even feel rushed. He has this unhurried majesty about him, doesn't he? And again, he says something that would be either crazy or deeply offensive for anyone else to say. He turns to this grieving father who's just heard of his daughter has died and says in verse 50, don't be afraid, just believe, and she'll be healed. Well, Jesus goes into the house, this house of death, the house of mourning. Everyone's wailing. And Jesus just keeps going with these kind of humanly ridiculous statements. Verse 52 to 53, he tells them to stop wailing because she's not really dead. Um, she's just asleep. And they, they know she's dead. I mean, <laughs> come on, Jesus. They, they know that she's dead. So their bitter tears turn into bitter laughter, mocking laughter at Jesus, at this fool who has disrupted their grief. So they think. But Jesus is only a fool if he can't back up what he says. And that is just what he does. With stunning authority and beautiful tenderness. He says in verse 54, uh, he takes this little girl's hand. What, what a beautiful and tender moment that is. He takes this little girl's hand and says, my child, get up. And he reaches down into death and pulls this girl to life. So much in, in these three snapshots of Jesus. But we started by asking the question, where is your fear? What is your fear placed in? Um, I, what I want to finish, though, is uh, by reflecting on Jesus' question to his disciples in the boats. Not where is your fear, but where is your faith? Where is your faith? Faith, biblical faith, is really just another way of speaking about trust. What are you trusting in? 
What have you placed your trust in? What are you leaning on? We all trust in someone or something. Everyone does, regardless of their religious beliefs or not. Everyone trusts in something or someone. We all put our faith in something. And what this part of Luke's Gospel so powerfully shows us is that Jesus, in him, we have someone who alone is utterly worthy of our trust. In him alone, he has matchless power over nature, over the forces of darkness, over sickness, even over, even over death itself. That great enemy. And if we saw him rightly, there is a sense in which each of us, we would know that he actually is the one we should fear. Um, he's the one we should fear. But wonderfully, and at the same time as that, as his matchless power, he is also the Lord of life, who is full of tenderness and compassion for broken and sinful people who come to him in faith. He is the Lord, as we're going to see this next week more fully, but he is the Lord who expressed his power most fully by dying on the cross for his people in their place to win them forgiveness and give them life. And he calls people out of a life of fear and into a life of faith in him, of trust in him. So where is your faith? Perhaps you're someone who knows that you, you know that your faith is not and never has been in Jesus. Um, you've never come to him for salvation, for forgiveness. You've never, you couldn't in honesty say that you've sat at his feet um, as his disciple to learn from him. Your trust is somewhere else. Uh, maybe it's in yourself or another person or in your possessions or in your ability to control things. Maybe your trust is in a, a, a different religious leader or movement. And I think the question this, this part of the Bible asks you is, will you turn from those things and put your trust in Jesus instead? Put your faith in him instead. Why trust in yourself when you are so weak and proud and foolish when you have no power at the end of the day in yourself to face the storms of this life, why trust in yourself? Why trust in your money or possessions when they can be taken in an instant? Why trust in your ability to control things when there is so much in your life that's completely out of your control? Has any other figure in history Religious or not, has any other figure in history had such stunning power and such beautiful compassion as Jesus? He is utterly unlike anything or anyone else. And he alone can bear the weight of your trust, of your faith. And he alone can send you out today in peace, in real, deep, eternal peace. 
But just lastly, maybe you have put your faith in Jesus. Most of us here have. But you kind of recognise that in practice, practically, when kind of the rubber hits the road, in practice, you do lean on other things. You, you do put your trust in other things or other people. Uh, you still find yourself looking for peace and meaning in life from the things of this world rather than the one who made them. I think one way to kind of, one helpful way to diagnose that is to ask yourself that first question we started with: Where is your fear? Um, what are the things that kind of bring out your fear within you? Fear is a weird thing. Some fears, like I said, some fears are healthy. Some are just kind of part of falling, living in a fallen world. But for all of us, I think we could, if we're honest and humble and we come before the Lord, we know that many of our fears have something underlying them, some faith, some misplaced trust in something else that we're kind of longing for and that when it gets threatened, our fears arise. Jesus is not a harsh master. The disciples cry out to him. People come to him. And he, is, he has a, a, a right firmness about him, but it's not a harsh firmness. He, he is at the same time so tender and so patient. And he does want to lead you out of your fears to faith in him. He does say to you, don't be afraid. Just believe. Put your trust in me. He does that gently, I think, and over time, uh, in the community of his church, will always be a work of progress, work in progress in this life. Our Lord will keep leading you, though, to replace your fear with faith in him. And he'll do that again and again until the day when he takes your hand and says to you, my child, get up. And he lifts you out of death into his eternal life. So look to him, my brothers and sisters, and know that he is the powerful son with all authority who will never leave or forsake you, who is with you, who is good and compassionate and is working all things for your good. Let's pray. Oh, our gracious God and heavenly Father, we do admit to you today just how, how weak we are, how foolish we are, how riddled by fear we can be so easily. Give us grace this day, we pray, to in those, in those fears that do come from misplaced trust in other things, to, to turn from that and to put our faith in you, to turn to you, our good and powerful King. Thank you that we can trust you, Lord Jesus. Thank you that not only are you the one who has all authority and power, you're the one who's so gracious and so kind and so patient with us. Help us to come again and again in repentance and faith to you, our gracious King. In your name we pray. Amen.